What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Gary Greenberg. Gary is a therapist and author. He is a contributing editor at Harper's Magazine. He's written for The Rolling Stone, New Yorker, New York Times, and he's also the author of Manufacturing Depression. His new book is called The Book of Woe, The DSM and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. So welcome to Madness Radio, Gary Greenberg. Well, hi, it's good to be here. It's really good to have you here. And Gary, you were actually interviewed a few years ago before the Manufacturing Depression book came out. And so if people want to check out that interview archived at the Madness Radio website, I encourage people to, to do that. Well, you went pretty far down the uh, rabbit hole of the DSM. How did you, because, I mean, your work is getting, I mean, it's great to see your work is really getting out there. Manufacturing Depression is a great book, and um, you've been getting a lot of coverage, a lot of mainstream media media play. And how did you end up writing the book that was is really encapsulating where the DSM struggle for the DSM-5 is, the, the Book of Woe? How did you end up writing that book? The easy answer to that question is that I wrote a magazine article for Wired about the uh DSM about three years ago when the war, the wars that the psychiatrists were fighting over the DSM-5 were just beginning to heat up. That article was called The Book of Woe, just like my book is, and the editor who assigned it was a guy from Harper's, and Harper's was a magazine in which I had an article that became the book about depression, manufacturing depression, and in that article, I spent some time at uh, Harvard Medical School as a subject in a clinical trial. I was guinea pigging it. And thankfully, my clinical trial did not involve real psychotropic drugs. It involved fish oil. And actually, as it turned out, I was on the placebo anyway. In any event, the surprising part of that trial to me was that I originally signed up for a trial of minor depression. But the intake interview conducted by a psychiatrist, in the intake interview, he concluded that I had major depression. And not that I'd ever been a big fan of the DSM. As a clinician, I've been using it forever uh, and always thought it's like a colonoscopy. It's one of those unpleasant things you have to put yourself through in the case of the DSM in order to help people use their insurance to pay for therapy. But as I was uh, getting interviewed by this doctor, I realized he was asking me questions key to the criteria in the DSM, but he wasn't really paying any attention to me. And not only did I find that personally insulting, but as a clinician, I wondered, how can you do this? How can you simply attend to the criteria and not attend to the patient? How did he do that exactly, Gary? What was it that he was doing? He gave me a test called the SCID. And the SCID is a diagnostic inventory keyed to the DSM criteria. And it was very simple. Like the, the major criterion for depression is, um, for major depressive disorder, is sadness uh, that lasts for two weeks at least two weeks. So the question that's key to that is, have you been sad for two weeks? <laughs> it's, it's not rocket science. It is a checkbox. It's a troubleshooting chart. They go down, and if you answer no, then they skip to page 26. And if you answer yes, then they go to the next item. And it covers the full skid covers the entire DSM. And theoretically, if you spend the hour with the person doing it, you can come out with a DSM diagnosis. 
So uh, he was paying more attention to the paperwork than he was to me. And in the end, he concluded that I had major depressive disorder. Now, this was a very strange thing because I had gotten myself the 90 miles to Boston. I had shown up. I was my, I think, my usual charming, funny self. I was clear that I was there partly as a uh, to do research myself, that is, to, to write an article about this. I was engaging. I wasn't somebody that if I was in his chair, I would have thought had major depressive disorder. But according to the DSM, at least according to the tests he was giving me key to the DSM, I did have major depressive disorder. And that sort of focused my interest on how this book actually got put together and how it's used. Remembering that the DSM, it's not only a, a convenience for therapists and people who want to use their insurance, it determines what drugs get approved. It determines courtroom questions like whether or not somebody is incompetent to stand trial. It determines commitments, and that is to say the kind that have to do with mental health. It's used in school districts to determine who's eligible for special services. It's a hugely important book. And so the question of how it gets put together and who puts it together and what their interests are is more than just of you know, some kind of scholarly value. It's a question of public health and public policy. You describe the DSM as to psychiatrists what the Bible is to Christians. It was not my uh, idea to call the DSM the Bible of psychiatry, and it's actually in some ways true. It's true in the sense that it's the foundational text. It's true in the sense that it's also like the Constitution is to the United States. It's the book that gives the institution its authority. Unlike the Constitution and unlike the Bible, the authority of the DSM comes not from God and not from, you know, the founding fathers. It comes from, at least presumably, from science. The modern DSM was psychiatry's attempt to rescue itself from a terrible crisis, which they found themselves embedded in in the beginning of the 1970s. And so sort of consciously created it as the cornerstone of the profession. So what was that crisis? Was that kind of the, the transition from Freudian psychoanalysis and that kind of approach to psychological problems and treatment to a more clinical or more scientific claiming approach? Is that what it was? The crisis in psychiatry was caused in part by some embarrassing studies that showed that psychiatrists, given the same patient, would disagree about what mental illness they had more often than they would agree. So that was one problem. And that was sort of an in-house problem that bothered psychiatrists. But then David Rosenhand did his famous On Being Sane and Insane Places, which was the study showing that, you know, in which graduate students showed up at emergency rooms complaining that they were hearing the word thud in their heads and were promptly admitted, all of them, uh, to different hospitals with diagnoses of schizophrenia. And in some cases had trouble getting back out of the hospital. Um, even though they never did anything more to indicate mental illness. And then that study made a big splash. And then in 1973, after years of protest by activists, the APA, American Psychiatric Association, voted to delete homosexuality from the DSM, which was then in its second edition, which was troublesome in many ways, the most obvious of which is, can you really vote a diagnosis off the island? Is that science? So psychiatry was not for the first time in its existence under siege, largely because of these questions of what is a mental illness and which mental illnesses exist and how do you know them and so on. And 
So they had to come up with a way to diagnose people reliably. And so during the 1970s, under the guidance of Robert Spitzer, they learned how to fashion criteria to go along with mental illnesses. So suddenly, instead of a paragraph describing what a mental illness, what, say, major depression of schizophrenia was, suddenly there were nine criteria for depression, and I think it's six criteria for schizophrenia, and so on. If they did, and their troubles were considered to be clinically significant, then they were said to qualify. They were said to meet the criteria, which was to say they had the disorder. That was the DSM-3, and that was how this approach to diagnosis came about in the first place. Since 1980, there have been a number of revisions of the DSM, and every time they revise it, there's new fights. If you look at it from the pers- – if you just ask the question, did it work, the answer is it worked brilliantly. Psychiatry went from uh, being a backwater and held in disregards by many doctors and other specialties – came back toward the mainstream. In addition, it regained the confidence of important funding sources like insurance companies and government, the National Institute of Health, all by virtue of having been able to claim that they had made diagnosis reliable. Uh, What they hadn't done, and this is really important, is they had shown that doctors could agree that this group of symptoms added up to that disorder, but they hadn't proved that the disorders existed. So while they had shown that the diagnoses were reliable, uh, that they could be agreed upon, they hadn't shown that they were diagnoses of anything. So when the, um, in the clinical trial, the doctor is asking you, have you been sad? Have you had these feelings? Have you had these thoughts? And comes up with this idea that you're you know, have clinically depressed. It doesn't really mean anything for you personally. It's just a sort of a observation from the outside. It actually meant surprisingly a lot to me. Because even though I was very skeptical already, I mean, I've been years in this field, and this wasn't the first time I'd written about uh, psychiatry. It certainly wasn't the first project in which I'd wondered about their, the disorders. It still had an effect on me to be told, you know, you qualify for this disorder. And at that time, this was 2007, the idea that depression in particular was the chemical imbalance had really taken hold. So even though I was very skeptical of that, I started wondering, well, I wonder if I do have a chemical imbalance because I do struggle with moodiness. And uh, I mean, ask my wife, she'll tell you. I can be pretty moody. I can get pretty low. And, you know, suddenly I'm wondering at the age of whatever I was at the time, 50, have I lived my life with an unnecessary amount of suffering because there's something wrong with my brain? That's a huge, huge question that people face. Is this something that, you know, could have been treated, should be treated because it's a physical limitation that I have, and I think that is an appeal to taking psychiatric medications or getting that, getting that test and getting that diagnosis. What do you think about that now? Did you take a look at that about the the biochemical, the claim that there's a biochemical basis that there's an imbalance that there are people who actually have disordered brains and it's only only right and only human to give them medical treatment for this this medical physical disorder that they have. Well, what I would say about that is that there's no doubt that the brain, like any other organ in the body, can go bad. I mean, why wouldn't it be able to, right? It's the most complicated organ in the body. You might even say it's more likely to go bad. But that I don't believe that that accounts for all of the suffering. There are many ways that a person can come to feel depressed, and one of them may have to do with brain pathology. But the problem is that at the moment, anyway, psychiatry can't distinguish 
between those disorders that are caused or people with the disorders whose trouble is caused by something going on in their brain that's analogous to, I don't know, diabetes or cancer or something like that, and people whose suffering simply resembles the organic pathology. But what they do is they simply gloss over that possible distinction. One of the things that the DSM-3 did and continues right through DSM-5 is it just said, we're not going to say anything about, the psychiatrist wrote it, said, we're not going to say anything about what causes these disorders or what the nature of them is. We're simply going to say, these are the symptoms, and if you have the symptoms and they're clinically significant, then you have the disorder. They've washed their hands of the whole question, which on the one hand, you understand that makes some sense, and at the same time, it's ridiculous because what it means is that anybody with those symptoms has this disorder, and the assumption behind all of this, whether it's stated or not, is that these are brain disorders, and someday we'll find out exactly what's wrong with the brain that's making you be this way. So you asked the question of, what was my investigation of this question? So I did a lot of research into the question of where did this idea of depression as a biochemical imbalance come from? And what I discovered was that it's a myth. It's a very carefully constructed myth. And I'm not trying to say there's a conspiracy here. It's just that doctors are so bound and determined to find organic pathology, biochemical imbalances behind depression that they just assume it's there and therefore they see it. You're also not saying that the, the experience of suffering or of pain is a myth. You're saying that they have to claim that there's a biological cause and a chemical imbalance. That's, that's the myth. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously anything that happens that has to do with consciousness is impossible without certain biochemical events. It would be crazy or something like crazy to, to say otherwise. It would be like insisting that the sun circles the earth, you know? But what does that mean exactly? Is, it, is, is the brain event the necessary and sufficient condition for the suffering? I'm not sure. I, I know it's the necessary condition, but, you know, maybe the brain is serving some, something else. Maybe there's such a thing as a mind. So, yeah, I'm not saying that the brain events don't exist or that they're not important. I'm just saying that they're not the only thing that we should be looking at. And more important, we don't know what those brain events are, even though at this moment you and I are talking, I guarantee you, somewhere in some doctor's office, somewhere in this country, a doctor is telling a patient that they have a chemical imbalance in their brain and that that's why they should take their Abilify or that's why they should take Prozac. And that very same doctor, if he goes to a medical conference, will certainly talk to his, if if a colleague asks him, hey, what about that chemical imbalance? He's going to say, well, well, no, there isn't. We don't know if there's a chemical imbalance Mm -hmm. because they don't. The idea that serotonin deficiencies cause uh, depression, which comes from the fact that the drugs affect serotonin metabolism, is absolutely incorrect. Everybody knows that. It's not serotonin deficiencies. It may not even be serotonin metabolism. It may be what happens as a result of altering serotonin metabolism in the brain that creates the effect of antidepressants. Mm -hmm. The brain's way too complicated for these simplistic explanations. And I think the other claim of that is that, well, you know, the antidepressant drugs work because they correct chemical imbalances. There's this disease or this disorder or this, these levels of chemicals are, are off balance and that's how the drugs work. Well, actually, that's, you can't demonstrate that chemically either. That's not why do some people find medications useful, for example. Yes, and, and ex- exactly. And I- indeed, if that were the case, you would expect a much more robust effect 
of these drugs. They, they aren't very effective, and it's been very difficult for them, for the drug companies to prove efficacy in clinical trials. So, yeah, clearly that's a, that's, that's a myth, and that's a lot of what manufacturing depression is about. Because I think that when we talk about this question of, well, do these biological diseases, disorders actually exist, people tend to think that, well, we're, we're claiming that suffering isn't, isn't real or that people don't need help on the one hand, or, but it's not at all. I mean, extreme human suffering can certainly exist without it saying that it's a biological cause or that it can be simply explained away by a chemical imbalance. And I think on the other thing that happens is that people think, well, you're, you're claiming that medications aren't helpful to people. Well, actually, clearly, obviously, many, many people take medications and find them, experience them as helpful. Many people don't have the opposite experience. But that doesn't mean that the explanation for why it's helpful is can be reduced to this biological point of view or biological causality. I talk a lot about pediatric bipolar because that's probably the biggest psychiatric scandal of our generation, you know, recent years, which actually has not that much to do with the DSM except for one thing. The DSM gives clinicians so much flexibility in terms of diagnosing mental illness that it was possible, despite the fact that if you look at the criteria for bipolar disorder, it's virtually impossible to diagnose a child with bipolar disorder. It doesn't say you can't, but it's very difficult to justify that diagnosis because bipolar disorder requires episodic mania. And children, most of them haven't lived long enough <laughs> to have episodic mania. And it's very rarely observed in children. That's why the prior to the advent of this idea about uh, pediatric bipolar, there was so little of it. But the DSM offers you this incredibly generous loophole called NOS, not otherwise specified. And so there is a diagnosis called bipolar disorder, NOS. And that's what children were diagnosed with. So one of the things that psychiatrists are surprisingly, apparently uninformed about, or at least aren't aware of, is that the effect that a diagnosis has on people's identity. Psychiatrists are very good at understanding the problem of stigma. And they have, to their credit, tried to do things to make stigma less. They've done advocacy and so on. They, they work with various groups to try to make the burden, that burden of diagnosis reduced. But they don't seem to understand that when you get a diagnosis, particularly of a lifelong disorder like bipolar disorder, that it changes the way you think about yourself. It becomes your identity. This is most pronounced not with bi bipolar, but with Asperger's. Now, Asperger's in the DSM-5 will be eliminated. And one thing that took the APA by surprise was the number of people who wrote in and said, essentially, how dare you take away our identities? They didn't seem to realize that when you tell somebody that this is what you have, you're also telling them, at least sometimes, this is what you are. And that's a function of diagnosis that is very rarely taken into account, I'm afraid. Now, is that also part of the problem maybe that we have socially, that we, we sort of think that, well, if it's not a, a medical illness, if it's not a psychiatric diagnosis, then the person is just like everybody else and has to be treated in this kind of normal, conformist way, that there's a lack of language here that psychiatry kind of steps in to give an official, authoritative-sounding language to something. Yeah, we have impoverished ways of understanding difference. And uh, illness has come to be one of our favorite ways to understand difference. And illness gives us some advantages. 
it turns difference to advantage in the sense that if you have a disease, then what you have is a ticket to social resources. And I don't mean that in a cynical way. That's that's a good thing. I mean, it's a strange way to distribute social resources, but at least sympathy, money, treatment, research all get distributed to people whose differences can be understood as diseases. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. We're speaking with Gary Greenberg. Gary is a therapist and author. He's a contributing editor at Harper's Magazine, and he's written for Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. Uh, He is the author of Manufacturing Depression, and his new book is called The Book of Woe, The DSM, and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. This is a huge issue because of the growth and the disability benefits, for example. And There's a kind of either-or. Either you are expected to be 100% functional in society, or you fit this disease disability criteria. And we see it in um, special needs programs, kids getting diagnosed as autistic because they have access to certain kinds of resources. And there's a huge, huge gain in a sense. There's a, there's a sort of a social benefit in a very twisted kind of way to getting a, a diagnosis now. And I think a lot of it is ties directly into poverty issues. What do you make of that? How do we navigate that? If we are critiquing the DSM and questioning its scientific validity, how do we sort of deal with this broader issue of access to resources and the ways in which we actually support people who have differences that do need different kinds of support? Well, I think that the the gatekeeping aspect of medicine, which is what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. um, is... I don't have any way of solving that problem, but I can make a couple of observations. First of all, the whole question probably becomes much more fraught and complicated because we have a for-profit healthcare system. If we didn't have a for-profit healthcare system, I think this would be easier because one incentive that would be taken away would be obviously the profit motive. The difficulty of opening the gate might be lowered and therefore the need to establish these binaries might be less. Another thing that I would observe is that, you know, the social resources aren't all material. They're also social in the sense of sympathy and so on. A lot of what people are after is just being accepted and understood. And that is, it's helpful to be able to say, well, I'm not just awkward, I have Asperger's syndrome. Rather than saying that, you know, I'm awkward, I get to say I have Asperger's syndrome and this is a neurodiverse world. Well, I think that's okay. I mean, that, that's, that's better than a person just feeling like they're stupid or, or worthless. But to let medicine make these determinations is also to invite a number of problems. The first of them, obviously, is the problem of cure. <laughs> if you call something a disease, then somebody's going to try to cure it. And, you know, increasingly, there are people who say, I don't know if I want to be cured. You know, the costs are too high, or I sort of like who I am. And if I can find a community that will accept me as, uh, you know, with my schizophrenia or my Asperger's or whatever it is, then maybe I don't want to take these drugs or take this cure. The second burden that comes with it is the one of having to think of yourself as, no matter how well it's put, no matter how little stigma is attached to it, is uh, having to think of yourself as sick. That has implications. And finally, it gives the people who create the labels too much power. You know, that's the problem we have with the DSM and the American Psychiatric Association. They simply have too much power. They're a private guild. They're basically a corporation, and they own these diseases. They own mental disorders, and I mean it literally. They own the intellectual property that tells us what the mental disorders are and what the criteria are by which they're known. That's a huge public trust, and it's privately held. 
it seems that one of the implications of that identity creation that a DSM diagnosis gives you is the sense of like, well, okay, now I don't have responsibility for this. And when someone is really suffering and your life feels really out of control, there is a feeling of like, look, I'm trying as hard as I can. I'm doing the best that I can to continue with school or to get my life together or to be able to work. And for whatever reason, I just can't. And then people don't like that and they don't want, want to hear that. And so there's a way in which well, saying I'm sick or I have this biological condition is a way of validating that sense of being out of control and not being responsible for that aspect of one's life. But that creates a whole huge set of other problems because then you start to have an expectation that you're not capable or an expectation that you're not responsible. And so what do you, what do you think about that piece of it? The motivation I think that often people have who are suffering to get an explanation that sort of takes the uh, feelings of guilt maybe or feelings of responsibility or feelings like this is just my fault and I should do something about it on my own. Well, I think there's plenty of people out there who are motivated to game the system. I don't think that's unfair to say that some people who are seeking treatment, disability, special treatments in some way, accommodations at work, at school, are just trying to game the system. Well, sure, it's a tough life out there in the United States, especially if you don't have you don't have very much money. So yeah, people are getting by however they can get by. I think that there is some truth in that, yeah. Yeah, I think as times get harder, more people seek, for instance, seek disabilities. Not only because it's a way to get a little bit of money, but also because whatever disadvantages you have become much more pronounced as the economic life becomes more difficult to pursue. So I think that's part of what's happening. I think another thing that's going on with that whole conundrum is that response, personal responsibility may not be all that it's cracked up to be. Or to put that another way, it's subversive to suggest that a person doesn't take personal responsibility for their lives. We have a system that depends on everybody taking responsibility for their lives, but the definition of how you do that is pretty narrow. And there are people who, for various reasons, whether it's because of their constitution, their temperament, their experience, their politics, their whatever, don't want to get with that program. And I think there's a huge fear out there about people who don't take responsibility. That's that's what happens, as you said, that's what happens with these labels. People, Some people worry that what they mean is that a person has stopped taking responsibility for their lives. I think that worry is overrated, and I think that it has more to do with a fear that society falls apart. This society falls apart if everybody isn't out there, you know, every man for himself and God against all. So you think there's a there's a deep connection between this culture of individualism and competition and capitalism and the rise of the power of the DSM? Yes, I think you've just said it much better than I have. <laughs> That's exactly right. So how is it a uniquely American thing? And I didn't do this in my book. This is a book somebody still has to write. But if you look at the DSM not as a, a selection of mental illnesses, but rather as a manual that tells us who we're supposed to be, or at least tells us who we're not supposed to be, or, if, or to put it briefly, if you look at it as a sort of a, a moral text, then I think what you find is that behind it, the pathologies that it describes are generally pathologies that occur when people are not able to get with the fundamental assumptions of our society. So, for example, major depression, 
Well, 20% of Americans are going to have major depression at some point in their lives, according to the recent statistics. That's one in five people. What does that mean? I mean, is it, one thing it could mean is that depression is like the common cold. It's very common. And, but, you know, we don't worry very much about colds. And we don't hear, we don't have doctors, we used to have doctors yanking out our tonsils all the time because people got cold, but they realized that was a stupid thing to do. So now it's just, you take it as part of life. But in a society that's devoted to the pursuit of happiness, the idea that people would be unhappy for a prolonged period, well, that all of a sudden begins to look like, well, maybe there's some kind of demand. Maybe it's oppressive to require people to be happy all the time. Or to put it another way, to suggest that when you're not happy, and if your unhappiness persists for more than two weeks, then chances are you have a medical illness. That's an expression of sort of intolerance for unhappiness, or to put it another way, it's an expression of the way in which we value optimism in this particular society. And obviously, optimism is tied to buying things. The index that tells us how our economy is going is the index of consumer confidence. If you don't have confidence, then you don't spend money. Isn't there a really fast-growing psychology of happiness, an attempt to kind of understand what it is that makes people happy so we can become more happy? And it's totally nauseating. I wrote an article about this for Harper's Magazine in, I believe, 2009. And it's people who are privileged and wealthy, who have decided what human flourishing is and are figuring out how to help us you know, reach it. And all you need to know about this is that it's led by Martin Seligman, who made his name in psychology by torturing dogs. He discovered that if you shock dogs randomly, as opposed to shock them for a particular reason, they give up. And he called that learned helplessness. And that made his career. And now what Marty Seligman is doing is he's selling the army a program based on his notions of human flourishing that is designed to inoculate soldiers against PTSD so that they will be able to go into war and have exposed, be, be exposed to horror and not develop PTSD. Now, on the one hand, that's a very nice thing because we don't want people to have PTSD, but it would seem to me the obvious solution to that problem is not to send them to the war in the first place. And the idea of people who will be exposed to the horrors of war and not be traumatized is frightening. And that, you know, I don't mean to oversimplify or tar everybody with the same brush, but that I think is as much as you need to know about this human flourishing thing. It's, it's obviously an ideological battle to help people get with the program. As a headline, hey, let's make everybody happy. Let's uh, believe in happiness. How do we maximize happiness? It sort of has this kind of common sense appeal until you start to think about it a little bit more and realize actually there's more to life. There's like caring and there's the environment and there's meaningful work and there's contributing to each other and supporting each other. And happiness hasn't really been the foundation of many world religions or <laughs> many moral systems as being the highest value. It's been something, there's something much deeper Yes, and to be fair to the advocates of happiness psychology or human flourishing, they do take that into account. They have a definition of the good life, and it does involve being involved with others, and it does involve expanding your mind. It's not simply uh, mindless optimism. However, it still has this whole overlay of nothing should really throw you off your path. You should be resilient. And the fact of the matter is that we're faced with problems like global warming, that if we don't get knocked off our path, 
we're not going to address them. Hurricane Sandy, which happened out here in the east and devastated the entire Atlantic seaboard, knocked people off their path, and it may actually get them to do something. To be resilient to something like that runs the risk of making people not able to care enough to change what they're doing. So the DSM, the Bible of, of psychiatry, really is, isn't a scientific objective document. It's, you're saying it's more of a moral text. It's, it's become, and maybe in the, in the absence of the dominance of the church, we've turned to science and we turn to medicine to give us sort of like a, a sense of what it is to be human, but really it's making a moral judgment. It's like smuggling in moral values in the claim of science and, and objectivity. Yes, that's exactly right. It's not only a, a text that people might read and say, okay, here's one profession's idea of what the good life is. It's a text that actually allows people to enforce their idea of what the good life is, and that's where it becomes problematic. We talked about the rise of disability and the way in which that that identity can get a certain kind of benefit or a certain kind of support from society. And I guess there's this question I still have about what about people, what do we do socially if we don't have something like the DSM? How do we address the fact that there are so many people who are really genuinely struggling, just really trying to make it, trying to put it together, trying to get their lives happening, and they just continue to have huge, huge difficulties, and then the appeal of something like a psychiatric diagnosis to lift that burden of responsibility, that sense of shame and guilt, like this is my fault, there's something wrong with me, I'm not trying hard enough, or, or how do we respond to those people if we're not embracing this idea that we can simply analyze them from a psychological and a biological deficit uh, standpoint and then say, okay, this is your disorder, this is why you're not able to succeed? I'm not sure that the uh, original purpose of the DSM, or even the major purpose of the DSM, is to give people that identity. In fact, I know it isn't, because really clear that that's not how the psychiatrists who write the book think about it. So in a way, what you're talking about is an accidental outcome. So the question really is, is there a more intentional way? If the object of the game isn't to treat or to count or to segregate, which are some of the traditional reasons for diagnosis, if the object of the game is to give people what you just talked about, then I suppose what you have to do is you have to create in society more mechanisms of acceptance. Really, the idea that the label gives you that, when it isn't stigmatizing you, <laughs> that it gives you those social resources, that is sort of a sad commentary on how we distribute social resources like money and sympathy. It's too bad that we require that. And when it comes to specifically DSM, we're all enthralled to this idea that suffering is the result of something that medicine can treat. That's an idea we come by honestly because medicine has figured out how to treat an awful lot of suffering. But the idea that all our suffering can be found in biological pathologies that can be targeted with magic bullet drugs and treated, that's a, ultimately a very oppressive idea and it's a very limited idea. So I don't really have a solution to this problem, but I would say that at the very least it requires looking at medicine in a much more limited context. There's some things medicine's really good at and some things it, it, it's not very good at. One of the things that we hear a lot about these days is the idea of evidence-based practice, that if someone is suffering, if someone has problems with attention or with depression or with anxiety or they're 
um, hearing voices or they're having some difficulty that might be considered psychological that, well, there's a lot of different treatments out there and, you know, some of them are really kind of not very effective, but we want to have these evidence-based treatments. We want to be able to show that something like cognitive behavioral therapy actually does work and therefore that's why we're going to fund it as a society. And you've written quite eloquently about the problems of of looking for an evidence-based <laughs> s- solution to what it is that can actually help people. Tell us some more about that. The evidence-based medicine in general is an attempt to establish accountability. And there's nothing wrong with that. I actually think that when it comes to mental health treatment, that evidence-based medicine is just the price that we, and I mean by we, we mental health people, clinicians, pay for having climbed into bed with medicine in the first place. It's, it's sort of, if you think of evidence-based medicine, it's our bastard offspring of having, you know, gotten in bed with medicine. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I want to preface everything that I say by saying I understand why that's necessary if it's necessary to have healthcare dollars responsible for our mental health. I'm not sure that's such a great idea to begin with. But if indeed it is, then what you have to do is you do have to establish outcomes and ways to evaluate them. And what you end up with are these very superficial, ideologically naive outcomes, goals that you have to treat toward. And you end up making psychotherapy and the understanding of the human that's behind psychotherapy superficial. You end up making it very medicalized. You end up circumventing the whole, when it comes to actual mental health treatment, you end up circumventing the relationship between the therapist and the client, which is actually the heart of psychotherapy. So when it comes to therapy, to subject it to evidence-based medicine, it's like trying to pour old wine into a new skin. I don't think it's going to work unless you change the very definition of what you're trying to do. So, Gary, you're a, you're a practicing therapist, and you described yourself as being more on the side of seeing psychotherapy as an as an art form, and not so much as as this kind of DSM oriented scientific objectivity endeavor. Tell tell us about what is your vision of how we should be responding to human suffering, and how we should consider the mind and the heart and people's efforts to try and live a good life or deal with the experiences that they're going through that are emotionally painful or emotionally difficult? Well, you know, therapy is what we have left now that religion has been more or less obliterated. And so in some ways, it's it's one of the things that we have left. And in some ways, you have to look at it as sort of what we're stuck with and make the most of it. Hmm. So to me, what therapy does is intimately tied to the way our society is organized. What therapy does is it provides the opportunity for people to sit down and focus on questions that otherwise we don't have the time, the energy, or the inclination to focus on. Like, what's the meaning and purpose of a life? Why do I treat people in the way that I do? How should I treat people? How should I treat myself? What should my relationship be with the rest of my society? And so on. And to me, the basis of that relationship is the relationship. It's what happens in that very intimate setting of an hour looking at each other and talking to each other. It's actually not that complicated. Now, does any of that have anything to do with healthcare? I really don't know. 
the fact that I'm able to charge $140 an hour for my time, well, in part, that's because there's insurance out there and it will pay me if I just will essentially lie and write down a psychiatric diagnosis. In part, it's the result of my being able to see relatively affluent people. And in part, it's the result of my what I do being difficult and recognized as difficult. But I could do it, and I do do it often for less money than that. If somebody can't afford to pay me the full freight, I just had an example. A guy came to see me, and he needs to be treated in his own view for anxiety. He's a real crossroads in his life. He's not sure of himself. He has trouble establishing relationships. He doesn't really know what to do next. And he has a security clearance. Well, I explained to him, if you use your insurance to pay for this, they're going to raise questions the next time you go to renew your security clearance or if you try to upgrade it. Now, those questions may or may not be innocuous, but the fact of the matter is he decided he doesn't want to use his insurance. Well, in return for that, I give him a big discount. I said, well, what can you afford? And the guy's making good money, so he can afford to pay me $100 an hour. I think of it like a car payment. This is what it's going to cost you. Sort of like if you can afford to drive a BMW, you're paying me BMW money. If all you can afford is a crappy Kia, then pay me crappy Kia money, you know? So that's the money side of it. Uh, The relationship is established, and then this whole superstructure of finance and uh, insurance and all that is imposed on it. If you eliminate that, then what you have is essentially the relationship that ministers or rabbis or priests or whatever used to have with their parishioners. Somebody that you can go to and sort of pour your heart out to and get back in return acceptance and understanding and insight and possibly even correction. And I guess the huge difference is that when you go to a minister, their value system, their morals, their their theological, spiritual beliefs are like right there on the table. But the psychotherapist often stands in this place of objectivity and common sense and science and medicine. And so there there isn't actual a recognition of the value and the morality that's at play in that relationship. That's exactly right. The ideology is concealed unless the therapist chooses for it not to be, which I do. I mean, of course, I I tell people what I believe. (laughs) And, you know, I don't try to tell them, look, this isn't healthy for you to do. I I say that once in a while if I really believe it. But I'm pretty careful to tell people that this is what I believe and this is where my reaction is coming from. And sometimes it's, it's only a belief that you have to be accountable for how you come across to others. And sometimes it's a belief about how we ought to act uh, in the world in general. But you're correct that in general, psychotherapy's ideology is concealed, and it may differ vastly from one therapist to another. When therapists rely on medicine or science to sort of take that whole question off the table, well, I'm a practitioner of Mm -hmm. a scientific practice here, I think they're doing everybody a disservice. One of the things that we're seeing with the DSM-5 is this eruption of this huge battle, this war inside the politics of it with some of the real promoters of the DSM now questioning some of the things that they've been promoting. And what do you see the future of the DSM as? Where is psychiatry headed? Because the battles that have emerged with the DSM-5 have been really huge and they've been quite quite public. And there's more of a greater recognition now, I think, that this is a political document, not just a scientific document. I think that actually that 
the extensive controversy over the DSM uh, is not necessarily going to clue the general public into how political the document is, at least not in a larger sense. It will be very clear to people when they read my book or the other stuff that's going to get written about the DSM that there are politics that take place that all the politicking that goes on behind the scenes to create the disorders and the criteria. But the big picture politics, the ones whereby the DSM becomes a moral document, I think that's going to stay pretty hidden. I also think that these wars may end up only suggesting that this particular crew of psychiatrists who created the DSM-5 are a uniquely incompetent bunch, which they are. I mean, I have to admit that while I don't believe that that is the entire explanation for what went wrong, the stupidity and the incompetence and the outright idiocy of some of the things that they did, is, it's, it's actually, it's, it's astonishing. Give us a couple of examples of that, Gary, because I know there's some pretty serious stories out there. This whole business with eliminating the bereavement exclusion, there's an exclusion in the DSM-4 for, uh, for the depression diagnosis because so many people who are grieving meet the criteria for depression there's an exclusion that says you have to, if a clinician can't diagnose depression, if a person has been recently bereaved within two months, they're taking that out. Now, I could go into the story of why that's happening, but just on the face of it, how stupid is that? They're going to turn around with a public that's already skeptical of psychiatry and say, okay, you lost your wife, and after two weeks, if you meet the criteria for major depression, you have a mental disorder? I mean, why would you do that? There's nothing to stop a doctor from providing medication to a person whose wife died yesterday, let alone two weeks ago, if they feel that their patient is, and the patient wants it, and they, you know, whatever. That's, that's the doctor's role. You don't need a diagnosis of depression to do that. 72% of antidepressant prescriptions are written without a diagnosis. So, so the only thing that they're doing there is they're getting rid of an embarrassing thing, because if you put that exclusion into the DSM, in the first place, then people will and have raised the question, well, what about unemployment? What about foreclosure? What about something, uh, divorce? And the answer to that question is there's no reason not to have those other stressors in there. And they can't go back to the old days when they cared about why you had your mental disorder. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, but they should have left it alone because the solution is worse than the problem. Okay, so that's an example. What's another example? That's a great example. Another example would be, and this isn't about a diagnosis, this is how they handled the fact that I was writing this book. They decided early on in the process of my writing this book that they weren't going to provide me with any information. Now, anybody knows that if somebody's writing a book about you, you not only provide them with information, you sandbag them. You fight about everything. You do everything you can to spin, to, to alter, <laughs> to get your voice into that person's book. It's, and indeed, most of what they could have told me, I just had to look a little harder to find. It's not like there's no long public record of psychiatry out there. And so they decided at an institutional level that the way to deal with this was to not deal with me at all. Even the Church of Scientology their arch enemy, this is interesting, their, their arch enemy, the Church of Scientology, worked very hard with Larry Wright, who just wrote that expose about Scientology, to control what he was trying to say. So that's just a, an example of the kind of 
whatever it is, thinking, it's sort of hostile, paranoid thinking that goes on at an institutional level. Is there another quick example about some of the stupid things that the DSM is, is going to be presenting us with? The decision to remove Asperger's was poorly considered because of what I mentioned before, which is that they didn't take into account that people would be upset that they would lose their identities. Now, how could they not, how could they not know that? So, I, you know, I just think there are a million examples. And in fact, Alan Francis, the former editor, of the, the guy who did the dsm four, this has been his critique. His critique is not a critique of psychiatry at all. He's still a big defender of psychiatry or the DSM. He's a big defender of the DSM. He should be. He wrote one, right? But his critique has been these guys don't know what they're doing. He calls them the Keystone Cops. And now... There's something wrong with that critique, too, because it misses the point, which is that the problem isn't just that these guys are incompetent. It's also that they're trying to do something that is probably impossible and is certainly not something that should be done, which is they're trying to turn human suffering into a series of medical disorders. And that, of course, is the big historical problem with psychiatry. And it's been, it's been you know, psychiatry's been bemoaning its difficulty in diagnosing mental illness for at least 100 years. This is not the first time they've had to grapple with this. Mm -hmm. And they understand that without a coherent diagnostic system, they're not going to have much respect. And so it becomes really incumbent upon them to fashion one. And that's what they've been trying to do since at least 1880. Gary, we're just about out of time with the interview. Tell us again the name of your book that's coming out and also how people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more information about uh, Manufacturing Depression, your other book, and your writings and, and your work. My most recent book is The Book of Woe, The DSM and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. It's an account of the making of the DSM-5 in its historical context. And everything that I've written, more or less, is on my website, which is garygreenbergonline.com, and my books can be ordered there, too. Gary Greenberg, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Gary Greenberg. He's a therapist and author, contributing editor at Harper's Magazine, and he's written for Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. He's the author of Manufacturing Depression, and his most recent book is called The Book of Woe, The DSM and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producer is Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Listen on the internet at madnessradio.net and on iTunes. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.